Hello again, and welcome to Global Exchange, part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. I'm your host, Colin Robertson. On this episode, we talk with Tom DeQuino about his memoir, Private Power, Public Purpose, Adventures in Business, Politics, and the Arts. The book has been well-reviewed, and as Tom reminded me, within the first week of its release, Private Power, Public Purpose vaulted to number one national bestseller in Canadian nonfiction. For listeners, the son of Italian immigrants, Tom was born in Trail and grew up in Nelson, British Columbia. Tom did his undergraduate degree at UBC, where he took up debating, roomed with Joe Clark, and met the love of his life, his wife, Susan Peterson Dequino. UBC and Queen's for Law School, then University of London for a master's in law, and then a return to Montreal to practice law. Tom worked in Pierre Trudeau's leadership campaign, and then after the 1968 election, joined Supply and Services Minister Jim Richardson as his executive assistant. Then a stint in the Prime Minister's office of Pierre Trudeau, before moving to London and Paris in private business before a return to Canada. There he joined the Business Council on National Issues, took its helm, and brought purpose and passion to Canadian business advocacy. Over the next 28 years, Tom would lead what is now known as the Business Council of Canada. As its founding CEO, Tom campaigned on behalf of free trade with the United States, and then with uh, Mexico, constitutional reform and national unity, the GST and reforms by successive governments to restore Canadian fiscal integrity and our overall competitiveness. Throughout, Tom took a keen interest in the cultural life of Canada, especially as a patron and fundraiser for national institutions, especially the National Gallery of Canada, as well as work within his own local community. Tom is a member of the Order of Canada, the Order of Ottawa, and a member of the Mexican Order of the Aztec Eagle. Private Power, Public Purpose is a big book reflecting a big life. It's part memoir, part journal, part travelogue with insights into the players, personalities, and the big debates in our national life over the past 60 years. Listeners should know that Tom is a good friend. We live in the same neighborhood, and we are both members of the North American Forum that Tom led for many years. I also worked for almost a decade as a consultant to the Business Council of Canada when it was led by John Manley. So let's get started. Tom, at times your natural optimism has a certain melancholy tone about it, how we are managing ourselves. We once did great things as a country. We punched beyond our weight in two world wars, were engineers in the design and then implementation of the rules-based international system. At home, we built the St. Lawrence Seaway and the Trans-Canada Pipeline, led in satellite technology, the peaceful use of nuclear energy and designed a social safety net that other nations emulate. Has our comfortable situation made us too complacent to realize our potential? And if so, uh, you know what, what happened to our country? Paulin, first of all, let me thank you for that exceedingly generous introduction. And let me say I'm, as you know, a great fan of yours and the work you do in the international domain, the international trade security domain, is second to none, and uh, I follow you uh, assiduously. Colin, let me answer that question first of all by saying that anyone who reads my 150,000 word book <laughs> will, will, have no, will have absolutely no illusions about the fact that I love Canada and I'm enormously proud of the accomplishments and you've just identified a number of them. Uh, but I do feel that at this stage in our development, we have become somewhat complacent. And complacency is sometimes due to the fact that we are so abundantly endowed with natural resources. Complacency because uh, we are able to attract vast numbers of people. This year, record numbers, 500,000 people coming to our wonderful country, talented people. Uh, people who will enrich our country, um, complacent because we go to bed at night knowing that the United States of America will defend us uh, no matter what. Uh, all of these things have contributed, unfortunately, to some shortfalls in our performance. We have had chronically low levels of growth. Our healthcare system is struggling. Some would argue 
that it is actually broken. Uh, it, we, we could aspire to be a great natural uh, resource power. In other, in other words, what I call an environmental superpower and an energy superpower, but we're not, mainly because we have divisions at home, governments who are turning a blind eye to maximizing the leverage of our natural resources. In the defense domain, we are pathetically inadequate in our ability to defend Canada, our northern reaches and our shorelines. And uh, the fact of the matter is that we're not thinking big anymore. Every time we try to do something, it takes such a long time to get it done. So what I'm saying is that we have all that it takes. The vast majority of countries in the world would kill to have our advantages but that complacency is not enabling us to deliver what we once did. Uh, I would conclude by saying on this question, the final two words of my book come from the words of the great Roman writer Horace, carpe diem. We need more, much more of what I call the seize the day mentality in our country in order to up our game. So Tom, what happened? You know, political leadership, I think, is key. And you certainly talk a lot about that because you've known successive prime ministers from Pearson onward, but also the business community. You know, we, we don't have as many world champions as you would think, given, again, what you pointed out are our, our vast sort of entitlements in natural resources. I think good, solid education and also the attraction of immigrants, which I think we would both agree has been one of the, the, something which defines us from most of the rest of the world and including the United States, because we appreciate the, the, the value of pluralism. Part, part of what has happened, Colin, is that we are a vast country um, that really operates, as you know, in terms of the greatest concentration of our population along a rather thin border uh, north of the US border. I often refer to that as the cream <laughs> on the in the in, in the milk but um we we because we're such a large country of of regions we don't always come together and um, and do things in a united sort of way I, I can give you many examples but what more classic example that internal barriers to trade we've been debating that issue now for 40 years uh, we've been told by Stephen Pollitz, the former governor of the Bank of Canada, that if we were able to eliminate internal barriers to trade to allow for the free movement of goods and services uh, in Canada, we would add immeasurably to our GDP, but we haven't done it. Why haven't we done it? Again, a failure of leadership, uh, in my view. And uh, that comes from the fact that we're a federation. We have provinces. We have an, a, a, a federal government. We're not always aligned. So that is one reason. The second reason, very simply, is that we are lacking in leaders. It's not that we don't have leaders in Canada. I argue in my book that at all levels and in all domains, whether it's philanthropy or economics or business or even politics, we have some extraordinary people. But we do not have individuals who seem to be able to say we are one of the finest countries in the world, we have all these advantages. Let's not be shy of what we have. Let's not apologize for what we have. Let's not ignore what we have, but let's shoot for the very top. My last chapter in the book is called Reaching for Gold. Enough of this reaching for silver or for bronze or less. No, that was the, the, the motto at the Whistler uh, Olympics when, you know, go for gold, which I always thought is exactly what Canada should do. Um, you, you talked about we are a federation, which I think is, is I think the fathers of confederation designed Canada uh, for the longer term, because as you point out, we are a vast country, but there are differences as you go across the regions, there's linguistic differences, there's cultural differences. It's part of what Canada is. Now you worked for Pierre Trudeau. He believed Canada needed a strong central government, but others whom you worked with like Gordon Robertson had a sort of more nuanced view uh, in terms of the Federation. Where do you come out on that debate? Because that's been a continuing sort of debate within Canada and certainly uh, 
<laughs> again, I came of age when Pierre Trudeau was the prime minister and the, the strong debates within our country. But since then, the prime ministers have sometimes taken a different view, uh, drawing from, in part, I would argue, the as you spell out in the book, the philosophy of, of Gordon Robertson was somebody else who you knew very well. Colin, first of all, let me say that I'm a huge apostle of federalism. Uh, when I was doing my uh, international uh, uh, legal work in London, and I was doing my postgraduate work uh, in, uh, in uh, on on uh, some constitutional issues. One of the papers that I did was on the comparative constitutions of great federations: uh, Germany, the United States, Canada, India, Australia. So I see the great virtues of a federation, which allows for a balance of interests in any one nation state. Um, and in Canada, we've gone back and forth from those from from times, certainly during wartime, when powers were concentrated at the center, to other times when there's been a move towards greater devolution. I think what we need is a balance in the country, but that balance, which is defined by the constitution, you know, that the province of Ontario, the province of Alberta will have X and Y powers. The federal government will have its own powers. That division, of course, has to be respected. However, in the modern world we live in today, leaders from the provinces, the regions, and the central government, and I would add to that the cities, which are extremely important, have to find common ground to work together to achieve great things. We've not been very good at doing that. We're, you know, we're brilliant at putting forward good policies. Canada is awash in good policy papers, and you know a lot of them, Colin, you've written some of them, but we're not very good at execution. And the key to execution is leadership. Mm. If you don't have people who say, this is important, and it's important that we work together to achieve X, Y, and Z, it simply won't happen. Tom, you know, one of the things, areas you talk about in your book, and that Stephen Pullis certainly talked about, is competitiveness. And, you know, we should, as you point out, between better, particularly in areas like resource industries, energy, yes, but also food, our financial institutions are, are very good. Higher education, the world does want to come to Canada because it's safe and you get a good, relatively inexpensive education. Um, I think we should have done more in communications and transportation, health care, but what is it, again, you've worked with all of our CEOs, I've worked with them, as you point out there, by and large, very impressive. They're, they're, they're dedicated patriots that they, they would like to scale up. But I'm not sure what, what holds us back when I look at other countries. You mentioned Australia, for example, or uh, you look at smaller countries like Finland who have big channels. What, what, what is it about Canada? And I understand that we're comfortable, but that shouldn't hold us back. It didn't hold us back in the past. When you look at sort of our history, sort of the CD ho, ha moments, and you referred to the Second World War, we were able to do big things. But I, you know, I look around now, and you know, Pierre Trudeau, he built the the Museum of Civilization, the National Gallery. But now we've got 24 Sussex has been empty uh, for what the last almost 10 years. We never did get the portrait gallery. What happened? Here I. Colin, I'm glad you raised the subject of 24 Sussex, because if you and I are going to be talking about our failure to be able to do big things, imagine what the world thinks when they see a prime ministerial residence that's been empty for a, a more than a decade, because we simply can't decide what we're going to do. I mean, thank you for raising that point. Usually I talk in terms of mega projects, but thank you for raising the subject of 24 Sussex. Uh, look, you know, we have some dynamic companies in Canada. Um, sometimes what we've been able to achieve in, in the excellence of some of our achievements in the business domain are somewhat overlooked. But if you look at our food uh, industry, both in terms of primary and secondary, if you look at our natural resource sector, our our pipelines, if you look at our mining sector, um, these are domains where we have excelled. It, it, at various points in time, we've actually 
been able to do something extraordinary on the manufacturing side. I, I you know, I hark back to automotive production. Mm -hmm. I always remind our Australian friends who have no domestic automotive production that Canada does, despite the fact that it shares a border with the United States where the greatest concentration of North American car production uh, is. Uh, we've also had companies such as Bombardier that at one point in time were global leaders in both aircraft and land transportation. Um, in the world of competitiveness, sometimes you're up, sometimes you're down, sometimes you're going to be uh, transcended by another competitor. That's, that's the name of the game. But my own view is that uh, the, the way you do more is to ensure that you're aligned. And alignment means that corporate leaders, government leaders, city leaders, um, the various communities of special interest have to realize that to achieve great things, you have to work together. In Canada, where we are rich in natural resources, it is preposterous that we should have to wait for 10, 12, 14 years to get permissions to be able to develop our resources. The rest of the world is not waiting for us, Colin, as you know, they go somewhere else, critical minerals. President Biden came, we had a very productive visit. It certainly was the greatest love in of any presidential visit that I have experienced, starting with Richard Nixon. Um, uh, and we talked about critical minerals uh, and we're excited about critical minerals. We know we have to do something about it, but the big question is how quickly will we be able to uh, arrange permits for that to go ahead with the speed with which it is needed and it is urgent. I use that as an example of a lack of alignment. We just simply do not have the alignment. And sometimes we don't have the alignment because there isn't a national vision, but it doesn't always have to be driven by a national vision. It can also be a regional vision. The regional vision of the West is primarily focused on resources, which quite rightly aspires to make Canada a leading resource power, not just in oil and gas, uh, and uranium, but also in wheat and the production of food. I mean, if you consider talent, food, and other natural resources, we are blessed to be in the position we're in, but we're not capitalizing on it. Tom, industrial policy fell out of favor, but now it seems to be coming back with a vengeance, both the European Union and certainly in the United States under Joe Biden. Do you think that that is something that Canada should embrace. There are certainly hints of it when you listen to uh, Minister Champagne and, and uh, you know, how, how do we, we're not going to compete with the U.S., but maybe we should align with the U.S. And if they're moving to an industrial policy, should we not do the same? Paul and I, in the three decades that I led the, the Business Council, I never uttered a word that was what I <laughs> call uh, enthusiastically supportive of industrial policy. And the, the reason I say that is that in many parts of the world, industrial policy has failed miserably. Industrial policy tends to concentrate resources and decision-making power in the hands of governments. We know in a competitive world that governments are not the best decision makers when it comes to the allocation of resources and in the advancement of innovation. However, and I add a big however, we now have a partner to the south of us that has invested a, a, a record amount of money into what they call the IRA. And you and I know that it really has very <laughs> little to do with the reduction of inflation. But uh, we run the risk of being left behind unless somehow, some way, we can be an integral part of that initiative. Now, we will never be able to compete dollar for dollar, obviously, with the United States. But at the very least, we should try to be under the within the umbrella of industrial policy in the United States, as we've done with electrified vehicles, to ensure that the harm that comes to Canada is minimalized and that the opportunities, in fact, are maximized. We, we are going to have a budget uh, in, uh, in Canada this coming week. Uh, the debate is going on how, much, how many billions of dollars in subsidies will be offered to try to at least 
put our finger in the ring of industrial policy. But uh, at the end of the day, I think it has to be the talent of our people. And we have very, we have one of the most talented workforces in the wor world, a, 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 a set of vision, visions that say that we can and will compete and leveraging the advantages that we have that the Americans don't have. And I've already talked about some of those this morning. But um, beware any country that says um, industrial policy will be our salvation. Because having examined very, very carefully the industrial policy experiments of the last century, I'd have to conclude that we should not be putting all of our eggs in that basket. No, I certainly, uh, all, I, Sylvia Ostry drilled into us that uh, governments weren't very good at picking winners, but losers were certainly very good at picking government. And <laughs> that cast a permanent pal on those who used to say, well, we should be doing, so that, that, that is certainly something I have never forgotten. Right. Another tough subject, and this, of course, shareholder value versus corporate social responsibility, uh, now with an appreciation of environmental, social, and government. Where do you come down on that one? Well, Colin, in my book, uh, there's, a, there's a chapter that is, uh, uh, describes a new way of, dealing, of doing business. Um, for some of your listeners, and they may be aghast at this, your younger listeners for sure, uh, when I took over the council, the doctrines of Milton Friedman were dominant. That is that there's only one objective of a corporation, and that is the realization and enhancement of shareholder value. Politically and more broadly, that philosophy was strengthened with the arrival of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. Uh, at which in their own ways produced many positive results in terms of shaking people out of industrial policy thinking and making people, urging people to be more uh, self-reliant. Uh, but but I, I would say that what when, uh, when we started off uh, in, my, in my maiden speech of the council, I said we had to do business in a different way. And the different way was that we should move from the Milton Friedman principle to and the embracing of stakeholder capitalism. And why did I say that? Because I saw the handwriting on the wall, although it was quite a revolutionary concept at the time within a, my business community, that we had to do more for the environment, certainly more for our employees, more for the environment, uh, have a greater sense of uh, uh, responsibility when it comes to how we handle the uh, effects of, uh, of economic growth, whether it be in the natural resource sector or whatever sector. So today's stakeholder capitalism is embraced. I feel in some cases we've gone too far in, in that people have forgotten what the real purpose of companies is. So what we need to have is a balance. And that balance is one where CEOs and their boards of directors drive the principle that we have to be very innovative. We have to be extremely competitive but at the same time, we have to be sensitive to the communities in the environment that we are in. Because if we don't do that, at the end of the day, uh, we the capitalism will be the loser. And as I, uh, as I remind people, the night before my dear mother died, she said to me, Tom, don't worry. Think about the poor. Don't worry about the rich. They can look after themselves. <laughs> only, to make, only to make the point that I've always argued from the day I took over the Council of CEOs was that the rationale of capital is the betterment of society. If we conclude that the, the rationale of capital, of capital is only to enhance capital, then I think we're done before we even get out of the starting game. No, I think that's true. And certainly my experience at the Business Council, and, and you were there much longer, was that this was something that our CEOs did appreciate not necessarily recognized by the rest of the population, but I can remember some fiery debates, particularly with Ed Clark, for example, doing champion exactly the kind of approach that you recognize you need to take because the argument that ultimately you had to inequality, which as we now call today, he felt was going to be the, the something that, that that would destroy the kind of society that Canada wants to achieve. Absolutely. 
I want to move to our big global relationships because you and I first crossed paths back when we were doing the original Canada-US free trade agreement, you and Jock Finlayson and the, the work that the, uh, the, the council as it is now was doing really was instrumental. But it, certainly my, my sense is that when it comes to our global relationships, and I think this comes through in your book, that it is the United States and the rest. But today we face the United States deeply divided in its politics and on cultural issues. It's forever wars and reckoning with social justice and economic inequalities uh, feeds populism and isolationism. And of course, we've seen the result in Donald Trump. Protectionism is from the United States is always a challenge for Canadians. On the other hand, as you also just pointed out, we've had a very successful visit from President Biden, as you said, and I certainly agree, a love-in. Be interested, what's your assessment of the U.S. relationship today and how are we managing it? Colin, uh, it, it, it certainly will be clear to anyone who reads my book that I'm a great admirer of what I call the Great Republic. Um, uh, I've traveled extensively, worked extensively in the United States, many, many relationships there. Um, but what keeps me awake at night is in fact, my fears about the Great Republic. You've already uh, I indicated the reasons for those fears, the deep and growing divisions, the uh, the the animosity, the uh, the the uh, the fact that uh, Americans are struggling and maybe not being able to come to terms with the fact that uh, they are in a state of relative decline in relation to uh, countries such as China. Um, and I really do fear uh, that we're going in the wrong direction in so many respects. Uh, so uh, how do I feel? I was encouraged by President Biden's visit. Incidentally, Colin, I first met uh, Senator Biden in 1985 on one of our CEO tours to Washington, um, uh, where he made a strong impression on me at the time because of his command of foreign policy issues. But let us be under no illusions. Number one, um, whether we're talking about the tail end of George W. Bush, uh, Obama, certainly Trump, and now uh, President Biden, and I greatly admire President Biden, uh, the United States is a very different United States than it was in the 1980s and the 70s. And uh, protectionism is still very much alive. And uh, despite the encouraging language of the president in his excellent speech to the House of Commons, uh, I feel that a, a good part of that protectionist infrastructure and a protectionist instinct is very much still in place. The other thing that worries me terribly, uh, Colin, is that uh, all of this may be very ephemeral. We do not know who will be the next president of the United States. It could conceivably, God forbid, be Donald Trump. We saw the outrageous, outrageous uh, behavior of Donald Trump vis-a-vis -vis Canada and so many other nations. It, the worst free trade agreement in the world, uh, you know, that he said over and over again, which was, of course, was total nonsense. It was a free trade agreement that inspired the rest of the world to move towards agreements of that kind. And uh, we did come up with a revised agreement uh, with some degree of improvement not too, too far away from the original one that he said was the worst ever. Um, but you and I know that that, that agreement may have, will, will be revisited in a couple of years. So here we are, totally dependent on the United States for our economic welfare in terms of our investment and trade, with no absolute certainty as what the road is going to be like ahead. So I, I worry deeply uh, about that. But if it says to me, and maybe we can pick up on this a little later in the chat, it means to me that regardless, to protect ourselves against any existential challenges, we have to become much more resilient in Canada, not just in economic terms, but also in terms of the protection of our sovereignty and our own security. Well, let's pick up on that, Tom. When you say become more resilient uh, about our own security, you know, successive governments, going back to Pierre Trudeau uh, with the third option and uh, the, what, what was it called, the, the counterweights with the, were to be Japan and the European community, now European Union, um, 
we've, despite our best efforts, and yes, we have managed to negotiate now both transatlantic and transpacific preferred agreements, still 75% of what we export goes to the United States. It is still the preferred market for all our small, medium-sized enterprises when asked, and minorities, women who are, we're now trying to encourage to get involved in business. It's still the uh, the U.S. market and the rest. So how do you achieve the the, the 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 diversity that we'd like to seek? But when we've got the, the United States, which is so easy, although maybe not so easy, as you point out, for good reason, because of uh, there may be a return to Trumpism. And as, as you also point out correctly, and I'm, Joe Biden is a protectionist, and we've had to, uh, the, the, both the Republicans and Democrats are more likely to have protectionists as contenders than not. Well, part of a, a resilient strategy that I would speak to, uh, Colin, is uh, what in fact drove uh, those of us in the Business Council as early as 1981 to push for a free trade agreement with the United States. And that is to position ourselves uh, on the North American continent in a way that that protectionism or the whatever would happen politically, that we would minimize the amount of damage that could be done uh, to Canada. And uh, it, it, when I talk about resilience, the resilience strategy that I talk about means one, that we have to position ourselves in the United States market in a way that we become, if not bulletproof, almost bulletproof. That means uh, investing far more than we have done so far in building the relationship at all levels. You've had a lot of experience mm -hmm. with this in the United States, you know what I mean. Yeah. But as I, as, as an argument that I made very recently to my colleagues in the Business Council, I said, if we were invested 80% in a single company and we knew that it, with that 80% investment, do or die, if it were ever canceled or significantly reduced, we would be out of business. What would you do to enhance your position in that 80% position? You'd have to invest more time, resources, people uh, in building the relationship. Now, various governments, uh, and, and I give the Trudeau government great credit in how they managed to handle biting their tongue how to handle what I call the, 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 the Trump aberration, and let us hope it, it is an aberration. But the fact of the matter is that we are still very vulnerable. So, and, and we don't really have a choice. We, we, we are joined at the hip. We shall forever be joined at the hip. Uh, so getting it right in North America is the number one priority. Secondly, we then have to leverage all these wonderful agreements that we've done, both with the European Union, uh, with the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, we talk about first-tier countries in, in the, in the Indo-Pacific, countries such as Australia and India and Indonesia, Japan, South Korea. We've got to do much more. But the, the reality is that uh, we will sink or swim on the basis of the success of the great republic. And that resilience must begin there. But I would add to that, and perhaps we can pick up on it in a minute or two, I would say that in the domain of defense, we have to become more resilient by investing more in our own defense. I do not, I mean, it's a nightmare scenario. My greatest nightmare scenario, of course, is nuclear annihilation as we get into very, very dangerous times with both uh, North Korea, China, Taiwan, and of course, Russia. But uh, we are, have been debating in this country, not nearly extensively enough, uh, the importance of defense. And we've said, yes, 2% of NATO is desirable. We're still at 1.27%. And now, even though President Biden was kind of gentle with us in that regard, he didn't do what Obama did, President Obama did, he didn't publicly chide us about our inability to reach 2%. I would argue that we should be shooting for well beyond 2% in Canada if we really do care about some modicum of uh, both independence and resilience. And you know, this business about, yes, we have to have over, over the horizon radars and we have to invest in new technology, which tells us about you know, the improvement of our sensors under the ice and 
through our radar systems. The fact of the matter is that we have no capability yet of interdiction. And so this debate about missile defense, I've been a, been a supporter of Canada being part of missile defense uh, since the days of Reagan. So here we are, we've talked about a variety of things that we can do, but in my view, we're still far short of the mark. No, I think I, I certainly would concur. Tom, uh, you've been a champion of closer North American collaboration and cooperation, leading the North American Forum, um, of which I'm a proud member. Certainly, I was converted to trilateralism in part by the arguments of you and others. But the North American idea seems to be uh, at another plateau. Can we revive it? In the short term, I believe uh, we cannot, Colin, for the following reasons. First of all, Mexico, and this is a very tough thing to say because I have a lot of good, close Mexican colleagues, as you know. Uh, I believe that Mexico is on the brink of being a failed state. Why do I say that? Uh, first of all, because we have a country heavily, heavily uh, uh, influenced by uh, narco gangs. Secondly, because we have a country, uh, despite the opening up of the Mexican economy, where corruption is rampant, um, where security is a source of great and growing concern, and we have uh, very much a left-leaning uh, president in, in uh, Lopez Obrador, who really, if, if, if it suits Mexico well, uh, may perhaps say, all right, I'm not going to speak out against uh, the new NAFTA, but who, in the grand scheme of things, is not a continentalist in, in any sense of the word. In the United States, we've already discussed the problems that we see there, a divided country, uh, a country with um, now deeply instinctive uh, views on protectionism, and a country that I would argue has a very powerful isolationist wing, alive and well. We have people who may, who are seeking to win the White House, who think that the defense of the Ukraine is a terrible mistake. So I, I worry, I, I worry deeply, but I would say this, the greatest hope that we have in Canada, and this may be more of a bilateral than a trilateral thing, the greatest hope that we have is to be able to do as much business in the most secure way possible with the greatest number of protections with the United States of America, but the idea of a North American community, as you and I, in many sessions at the North American Forum, discussed where we would have, uh, you know, relatively free movement of people, uh, where we would have uh, protectionist free trade. That idea, for the moment, is totally dead. I do not see it coming back soon. No, I think uh, with with uh, with a heavy heart, I have to. Con concur with you it's uh we'll keep the flame burning but it is going to take uh different leaders and leaders in both the united states and mexico and uh, there's uh, so for now I, I think we're we're paused certainly plateaued i want to come back you talked about defense but you could also make the same arguments around diplomacy and development uh, my question and I think that it's the evidence is, is is clear both in your book and in how you feel. Are we pulling our weight internationally, and do our efforts, uh, as the president put it, uh, when he was asked by Xi Jinping, you know, what defined America? He said possibilities. Well, we've certainly got possibilities, but then Biden went on to talk about capacities, and uh, I'd be interested in your assessment of both our. I think we would agree in our possibilities, but. What about our capacities when it comes to not just defense, but uh, development and diplomacy? Well, on the diplomatic front, and Colin, I bow to your wisdom on this, you're an, uh, an accomplished diplomat. But, you know, for the longest period of time, certainly in my most of my lifetime, Canadian diplomacy, whether it was Canadian diplomacy at the UN, Canadian diplomacy at the WTO, Canadian diplomacy in, in, in bilateral uh, arrangements, Canadian diplomacy at NATO was held in high regard. Uh, I think that that uh, regard has been diminished uh, in recent years, I'd say over the last perhaps 10 years or so, 15 perhaps. Um, and it's not because the quality of our diplomats uh, is not what it once upon a time was, 
But I think it's largely due to the fact that we have governments that are trying to do too many things, governments that are more interested in news releases than in action, um, and governments that, uh, you know, I've studied the public service very intimately for 40 years. When you have a public service of Canada that is showered day in and day out with new policy initiatives, what is that public service that I argued was once upon a time the finest public service in the world? How is it to cope with this cascading of demands upon it? How is a public service really meant to react when the leadership vision is not there? Uh, so I, I worry on the diplomatic front. You know, I had a chance encounter with an old friend, you know him well, yesterday, John Weeks, uh, yes. who was chief negotiator for the, the NAFTA. One and of our fellows. And, and that's right. And we both agreed that one of the areas where uh, Canada, Canadian diplomacy is badly needed right now is, is to try to build some kind of a leadership coalition to get things done to bring the WTO, the World Trade Organization, back into some form of relevance. Canada used to be very good at doing that sort of thing. That's the sort of thing we should be concentrating our resources on. And, um, and I just feel that whether it's our diplomats or whether it's our public servants working in Canada itself, that they're not getting the motivation or the direction that uh, they once upon a time had. And when it comes to development, well, what can I say about that? You, you know that our campaign to, with regard to the Security Council was uh, unsuccessful. Look at the countries that were, um, you know, the, the finalists and the finalists. I mean, when you look at countries like Ireland and Norway, these are not big countries. These are countries that have made an impression. I would add to that the Netherlands, for example. These are smaller countries that have made a big impression. Why, given that we're now almost 40 million people with all of our experience, all of our alliances, why can't we be, do, can't, why can't we be more effective? The answer is that we could be, but we're not. Oh, I think that's right. And certainly, again, when I look from Trudeau to Trudeau, I see stark differences. One of the chapters that I found uh, the most engaging and your personality came right through was on the arts and the importance of the arts in Canada. And you have long been a supporter and patron of, as I said, uh, various cultural institutes, nationally defining institutes, but particularly the National Gallery. But today, the National Gallery seems uh, adrift how do we fix it? Because it's it's the one place when you come to Ottawa, that iconic building, and uh, then being then seen. To me, I tell foreign diplomats, just walk through the Canada Gallery, because then you'll get a sense of what this country is about. Exactly. And you saw that uh, Dr. Bi uh, uh, Dr. Biden, uh, Mrs. Biden, uh, along with uh, Sophie Gregoire Trudeau, did actually visit the National Gallery uh, and visited the excellent exhibition that's on there right now called Uninvited. Colin, I would say this. Um, to me, culture has always been an essential component of what I would call resilience. You know, earlier on in this talk, Tim, yeah. I, I said, how can we have a strategy of resilience? A strategy of resilience requires a strategy that ensures that culturally we are strong and innovative. Um, you know, I remind you that even though I was a passionate advocate of the free trade agreement with the United States, uh, I stood up very publicly and defended the cultural exemption in the free trade agreement. And I did that because having served as counsel to Time Inc., I could see the power of American, they don't call it culture, they call it something else, but I could see that power and we had to do, do something about it. Um, I, I would say this about Canada and about my chapter on the arts in the book. Number one, we have some magnificent national institutions. For example, I draw attention to the National Arts Center, one of the finest performing arts centers in the world. Our National Gallery, uh, up until our recent troubles, is certainly, it's been around since 1880, could qualify as being one of the finest visual arts institutions uh, in, in the world. And if one goes right across the country, you'll see that in many domains, whether it's theater, music, literature, uh, we are many times more the country today than we were 50 years ago. Now, some institutions will run into trouble if they're not 
managed properly. The National Gallery of Canada now, and I served, I was a founding director, been part of that organization for 25 years. I served as, for 18 years as the chair of the uh, foundation. We raised a lot of money, over 150 million in both art and, and uh, uh, financial support. Uh, but uh, we are now just waiting. Uh, we're on the cusp of hearing who the new director is going to be. And what the National Gallery needs is a new director who is uh, an excellent art historian, one who's had deep museum management experience, one that knows how to work with donors, and one that can um, repair some of the damage that has been done in recent years and bring the institution back to uh, its first rank standing where it has been for a long time. And as I say to my donors, we're, we were established in 1880 and we're gonna be there for another 500 years. We're gonna get over this and with a new director, hopefully we'll be moving on to bigger and greater things. Oh, and we certainly have that magnificent building as well as the contents of it, which you've done so much to contribute to. And I look across the country at our, at the galleries and, and provinces and cities and think, gosh, they're well run. We certainly, we certainly should have the talent in Canada that can grow and take on the national job, which is important for Canada and for the cultural life. And I'll just say to listeners, if you read one chapter in Tom's book, do read the chapter on the arts and culture, because you come away with a sense of of, of what Canada can has achieved, and and that we that there was sometimes a question: Do we have a culture in Canada? Well, we certainly do. Tom, my, my final question to you before I ask what you're reading or streaming, what message do you have for young Canadians looking for an interesting career that also gives back? Because certainly this is something that comes through in your book, that you looked for something which was going to be interesting, but also gave back. Colin, in my uh, book on leadership and leaders, I talk about the leaders that have inspired me the most that I've known personally. And I would say our, our country is awash with excellent leaders in all domains, whether they're social activists such as Zita Cobb, well known for Fogo Island, or whether they are incredible entrepreneurs who started with nothing, such as Jimmy Patterson out in, in, in British Columbia. We, we, we've, we've certainly had some uh, excellent people in the public domains. Um, I'm very active, as you know, with uh, with the Ivy Business School at Western University. And every year I see these incredibly bright people going out. And my message to them is, uh, you know, the, you used a word earlier, possibilities. Recognize that the land that we are in offers infinite uh, possibilities. We also happen to live in one of the bless most blessed places on earth where we have freedom of speech, respect for human rights, uh, all the advantages that you have when you are a relatively rich uh, country with great human talent. But I say, uh, go out, uh, get the broadest education you possibly can and experience early in life. And that means working experience as well as academic experience. And then really concentrate hard on domains where you feel you can make a difference. And to use the words of President Obama, Doing hard things is hard. This is not mm -hmm. achieving great things or significant things in life does require concentration and hard work, all the while respecting uh, people around you. And I, and I would want to conclude with this. When I talk about respecting people around us, we have to ensure that all discourse in the country, whether it's in the corporate world or the political world, the world of social activism, we need civility. We need decency. We have to understand that a great country is built on strong ethics, on respect for other people. So I get very cross when I hear some of the really profoundly disrespectful talk and manifestations that we've seen enter our political life, uh, for example, but we see elements of it as well outside of political life. So I say, do the best you possibly can. And then once you've achieved something significant, work to a, a goal that Michael Wilson used to call the triathlete concept. It's what I've tried to practice in my own life. And that is, yes, excel at what you have concentrated on, but then be prepared in a very significant way to give back. 
because it's only by giving back to society that we continue to build an ever better uh, society and a better Canada. Well, Tom, you certainly personify giving back. My last question to you, it's always a listener's favorite. What are you reading or streaming these days? And I look at the books <laughs> behind you. I know that you'll, you'll have at least a couple of suggestions. Well, uh, this is on, on streaming. We are all, how can I put it? We're all victims of uh, beneficiaries, huge beneficiaries, but also to some extent victims of uh, the the demands uh, and the addiction of what I call streaming. And that can be streaming the the Financial Times of London uh, uh, or or the Guardian, or it can be streaming some of the wonderful hub uh, with some of the wonderful um, streaming opportunities we have in this country, such as the one that I'm doing with Colin Robertson at this <laughs> very moment. Uh, so uh, all I, I will confess to you, I've only I've never slept for more than four and a half to five hours a night. And from early morning to late at night, I, I find myself just reading, 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 which I know you do a great deal of. Uh, but there's never any end to it. But as I was saying to my wife, Susan, this morning, um, think when we're reaching out for information or analysis, think of the days when before the internet, uh, when we had to actually go to books to find this. We had to go to libraries to find it. I mean, the, the revolution has been so massive. As for what I'm reading, there are two books that I'm dipping into at the moment. One is uh, Chip War by Chris Miller, which gets us into the very um, sophisticated and uh, complex domain of, uh, of chips, their use in manufacturing, their importance in artificial intelligence. And the other book, which I strongly recommend, is called The Metaverse. And the, the um, author there is Matthew Ball, which gives us a good, hard, at times terrifying look at the world of artificial intelligence. So, uh, uh, you know, and I've, I, I've, I've got some easier books to read, such as, you know, the, 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 the Love and Lives of uh, Ludwig van Beethoven, which I've just read, been reading about very recently, um, uh, about some of the discoveries around his DNA. Anyway, um, but uh, I would certainly recommend Chip War and uh, the Metaverse. All right, Chip War and the Metaverse, and for distraction, the love life, uh, loves and life of, of Beethoven. Um, Tom, thanks so much. Uh, thank you for listening to this episode of the Global Exchange. We were joined today by Tom DeQuino, and I strongly encourage you to buy and read Private Power, Public Purpose, Adventures in Business, Politics, and the Arts. You can find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and we will link to the books that Tom has recommended. The Global Exchange is brought to you by our team at CJAI. Thanks quote to our producer, Charlotte Duval-Antoine, and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Colin Robertson. Thanks for joining us today on the Global Exchange.